0: Three, two, one, we're live. In this episode of Dirty History, I'm sitting down with Kit Nichols and Bill Germano, both faculty members at the Cooper Union, whose new book, Syllabus, the remarkable, unremarkable document that changes everything, was released by Princeton University Press on October 20th. Gentlemen, thank you for coming on. Happy to be here.
1: Thanks so much for having us, Thomas.
0: So I came across both of you on the New Books podcast network, and I was immediately interested when I saw syllabus in in the title, because I've long thought about the syllabus, you know, why classes have it, what purpose it serves, what it represents, what messages it conveys. And I realized that in in the canon of educational writing, the syllabus is seemingly one of those it's just how it's always been features of of a classroom. What, what I mean by that is is the way the syllabus has been written about by many is, as you put it rather succinctly in your book, reductive. Why do you think that is? I mean, why is this feature that's so ubiquitous to almost every single classroom not given the same treatment in writing as any other form of educational technology?
1: Bill and I would maybe answer this in slightly different ways. Um, I was thinking, should I jump in or should Bill jump in? But I, I've been thinking about this a little bit. Part of it, it's it's about everything about the classroom we tend to take for granted. Like, why why do we do why do we do classes? <laughs> why do you organize education into courses? Um, why do we work within the disciplines that we work within? And it all comes to us as though it just you know this is how it always was, as you suggested. Uh, and Bill and I were just returning to this uh, a little bit earlier today. You know, the, the word syllabus, as we point out in the book, was was made up by accident. And then sort of came down to us as you know, a document that contained the knowledge that the professor would sort of pour into the students, uh, the old-fashioned you know banking concept. And a lot of what we wanted to do in this book was turn that on its head and say, well, what could a syllabus be? I mean, if we stop taking it for granted, if you've, if you've gone to college, um, even for a couple of courses, you know what a syllabus is, you think, right? But maybe we don't know what a syllabus is. Maybe it's a, a form of writing that could do other kinds of things. And um maybe it needs to do other kinds of things here in 2020. I mean, especially in 2020. Uh Bill, but I, I want to give you a chance because it's a great question and it's a it's a fun question.
2: It's also a question that goes to the to the heart of uh the heart of the project. Um one of the many short answers, I think, to a complicated question is. Teachers haven't had time and they haven't been given permission. Uh, So much about teaching is giving your students permission to think and to think creatively and to take risks. Yeah, of course, we want them to, quote, learn things, unquote, but one of the things we want them to learn is how to think. Uh, And the notion of extending permission uh, to teachers is, I think, something we never say explicitly in the book, but I hope it's on every page in some way. There, There is a sense in which this book uh, is trying to address uh, a central issue, at least in our view, this is a central issue. But it's also a love letter to teaching, and I think a love letter to learning as well. I would can't imagine uh, I couldn't imagine 10 years ago saying, you know what I really want to do? I, I want to write a book about the syllabus. But <laughs> um, the, the, experience of, the experience of being a teacher week after week, month after month, year after year, and, and I've only, because I, I mentioned earlier to you, I had a, a first life in publishing. I, I've been doing, doing this kind of work for uh, only 14 years, uh, and I have colleagues who have been doing it for, for decades and decades but i don't think age or the point in your life when you're working on teaching uh either prevents you or gives you special from uh either prevents you from having special knowledge or gives you special knowledge you have to kind of figure out what the questions are going to be and one of the themes of the book is looking squarely at what you're trying to accomplish and what you want your students to be able to do that's not something that i think Every teacher has been allowed to entertain and we're eager to encourage people to have the freedom to take that risk.
1: Yeah, Bill. I mean, I want to jump right on that because that's that's the problem of the syllabus as like a list of the knowledge that you're going to give to people. That's not how it works. I mean, Thomas, you're a teacher. Mm -hmm. You don't just give people knowledge and then they have it. So what would. That document that we call the syllabus have to do differently to be about and for the purpose of students learning how to do things. That's a different kind of document. I mean, it's like a magic book, basically, uh, almost like a you know a magician's guide. I hope not like a necronomicon. I, I think it's ideally like. What would the opposite of a necronomicon be? A viva a viva nomicon? <laughs>
0: oh, I, I mean. You, uh, Bill, said something about you're hoping to teach students how to think, and I always took it a step further with my students. I'm trying to teach them how how to learn, right? And you really don't learn by one person telling you this is exactly what you need to know by the end of the week, and if you don't know it, then you're going to fail the test or whatever it might be that you find to be so common in secondary ed. And, and as the title of your work suggests, I mean, you two very carefully consider the syllabus, and... When I picked up the book, I, you, you had me worried on the first two pages. I, I was reading it and I thought, I'm like, do these guys seriously believe that teaching is just 16 weeks of like blathering on at a group of students? And, and, and fortunately you were writing this nightmare scenario and, and I was able to breathe a sigh of relief. But I found it interesting in, in waking up from this teaching nightmare, which I think any educator can attest to having. The first thing the teacher does was open their laptop, and look over the syllabus. And I think that really sets the book up perfectly as you get the feeling that then the syllabus must be this awfully important document if that's the first place the teacher starts working. And we've kind of been hitting at, hinting at this already. I mean, why, what do you gentlemen see as the importance of this document? And I know Kit, you were getting at it having to kind of morph, especially today in 2020. I mean, what do you see as the importance of it right now?
1: I Part of where, and so Bill Bill came up with the idea for the book, by the way. So as much as he might've said 10 years ago, like he didn't imagine himself saying, boy, I can't wait to write this book about the syllabus. Um, you know, I had to deal with Bill taking me out for a cup of coffee and being, Kit, how would you like to write a book about the <laughs> syllabus? Oh, um, true, this is true. <laughs> but, um, you know, but then almost immediately I started to think about what it's like when you're trying to craft a new course. and what it's like for me, and I think for a lot of people, is you know sitting there for weeks, procrastinating without realizing that you're procrastinating, largely by focusing on what are the right books to teach? And uh, that's important, right? Like how am I going to cover the stuff I want to cover? But it doesn't really get at the center of what a course is about. I mean, a course is about what the students are going to become capable of, which means that it's not just about like what you're going to read. Um, So as soon as I started to frame that for myself, like my own problem with writing syllabi, that I would go through these several weeks of asking the wrong questions to myself and realize that, wait a second, I've got to start working from the kinds of questions I want my students to learn how to ask. And giving students the right kind of authority over their own learning, right? Just like you were saying, Thomas, teaching is so much about learning how to learn. Um, those moments where a student does something that they didn't know they could do before. And, you know, the, the best teachers then stop the student and say, hold on, that's amazing. You should be really proud of yourself, but go back five steps. Tell me how you did that. Tell yourself how you did that. What were the things you had to do? And that to us is really the core of what a syllabus does. You know, as it, it stages those possibilities for students to encounter what they can't do. To struggle, uh, ideally, to make some real gains, um, to be the protagonists in a in a story, really. And we we write quite a bit about narrative in the in the book, because we really think that teaching needs to think about storytelling, and not at some simple facile level, but we have to actually almost be like narrative theorists when we're when we're teachers, and the students have to kind of become people who can theorize about how stories work. Too, because, you know, that's that's how knowledge gets framed. So, yeah, I, Bill, I, I bet you have things to say here too.
2: You know, I, I was I can only agree with uh, what with what Kit's just said. I was thinking of so um, in a remark that was repeated to me recently, and I cannot possibly come up with a source for it. But someone uh, made the observation, which I think is uh, remarkably. Uh, trenchant, that telling someone something they do not know is not teaching. And uh, unfortunately, so many negative models of teaching, uh, and I'm not going to blame individuals, but I think there are models out there that are used as templates for presenting the, uh the teacher before the student rely upon as it were the revelation of a fact or the revelation of a concept or an idea um, but that that 's like making a one way phone that's like making a one way phone call um I, you began thomas i think saying about why now more than ever and the the nowness of is a uh, is partly a generational thing. I think that the, you know, for folks of my, of my age, my generation, uh, the arrival of the internet and the, not only the internet of things, but the internet of facts, uh, there is really not a good reason to spend 45 minutes rehearsing with students a set of facts that they can more easily get on their iPhones uh, than they can by writing down what you have to say or copying notes in the blackboard. And I don't think that's a bad thing. One can talk about whether people read as much as they used to. I think they don't, but they also read in different kinds of ways. But the positive side of that is if you can assume that knowing the dates for the War of the Spanish Succession is something that a student can get on her iPhone, you can begin talking about the really interesting questions, including how do we want to use the past? What sort of ideas can dynastic conflict open up? Uh, I don't know why I chose the war of this bad <laughs> succession, but it could be really anything. It doesn't make any difference. Um, getting people to craft a question. I teach freshmen. Uh, are you teaching freshmen next semester? I'm teaching second years, although my
1: my course is kind of, we're, we're flouting the... The rules a little bit and enrolling some third and fourth years because I won't tell anybody. I won't tell I'm I'm keeping it very secret
0: here. Just a few thousand people.
2: (laughs) Exactly. But being able to tell students what I want you to be able to do at the end of the term is to ask a question that is meaningful to you and meaningful to the material. And to know what that kind of a question looks like seems to me vastly more important because that's a life skill. Uh, it's a life school that's both located in this group moment. Kit and I talk a lot about how it's really hard to learn by yourself. And I know in the moment of the pandemic, we're all, many of us are trying, I certainly am, trying to learn stuff by, at home or wherever we may be located. But teaching, teacher, and, the teacher-student in the classroom is a is a community effort. And the more one stresses that, the more one give students permission to think that their ideas, their stumblings, their discoveries, their getting it wrong are all positive, valuable things, then I think you have the capacity to build the trust necessary to get them to the point where they're willing to take the sort of risks you're hoping they'll be able to take.
1: Yeah. And we live in an antisocial, um, sort of anti-communitarian moment in so many ways that Rethinking the syllabus as a kind of social contract feels incredibly urgent, and there's so many crises that we're living within right now. Bringing students together under the aegis of shared purpose seems absolutely critical to navigating this time. And If higher education and secondary education aren't on top of that work, it either won't happen or it will happen in in worse ways than it happens with us. Um, one of the things we talk about in the book is that a syllabus is a place where you can actually establish epistemic rules, rules for how we make and share knowledge. And you know knowledge is in crisis right now. That, that I think is a pretty straightforward statement that your listeners will understand. How do people determine what's true and what's not true? Well, you know, in a syllabus, you can actually start setting some of those ground rules. And that seems to us way more important than grading policies. Attendance policies and the like, though obviously those things are still important.
0: Both of you raise a whole host of issues that I want to get into. Um, we'll get into viewing the syllabus in narrative terms in a little bit. I, I want to hone in on what you just said. You talk about this urgency and this building this classroom as a community and developing skills that the individual will use in their life and whatnot. So is that how you gentlemen really view a syllabus as like this foundational document for a, for a learning environment?
1: Absolutely. Um, uh, You know, there's a reason that after the introduction to the book, the first chapter is the chapter on building a community. Mm -hmm. Right now, so many students are sitting alone in rooms all over the country. My my daughter is in fifth grade uh, and is doing distance learning, which, you know, I often think of more as distant learning. And it's it's not good. It's not good at what it's doing. Uh, it's not good for her. It's not good for her peers. I desperately want the physical classroom back. I'll just put that out there to start with. And I think very few of us have, the, have had the time and the training and the access to the right technology to do online teaching well. But even beyond that, um, even the best online teaching, I think, probably still pales in comparison to the physical embodied reality of people working together. Um, so I mean, I, I think the learning together is the most important piece, and the knowledge that we produce uh, in the humanities and social sciences where where Bill and I live, that knowledge is social inherently. I mean, it's not knowledge if it's not shared among people. What is political theory with one person? You know there there can't be political theory with one mm-hmm. person. What is history with one person? What does that mean? so so, for the knowledge even to exist as knowledge, we argue, Um, It has to happen in a group and in a way that pays attention to group dynamics, the needs of individuals from different backgrounds, etc.
0: It definitely seems as of late, the, the syllabus has been asked to do many, many things. Some of them are practical. Some of them are administrative. The things that the syllabus does now that I see commonly, you see a lot of Title IX stuff, grading policies. I mean, do those additions, those administrative additions, do they distort the central purpose of what you view the syllabus, what it ought to be?
2: I I think they can if people view the the syllabus in a kind of spatial quantification. The more paragraphs taken up with administrative language. The more that demonstrates that the administration has won in some sort of imaginary, Im- imaginary battle, and and we're not, we're we're not um, poo-pooing the need for compliance with the regulatory structures of the institution, or more broadly of society, but. That's not the teaching part of the syllabus. That's sort of the, non, that's the, that's the non-teaching part. It may be a necessary ancillary. Um, the, the trick, I think, and I, I'm not sure I, I have this completely down for myself because I think of my own syllabi as pretty dynamic. Uh, I'll say to students in the middle of the semester, you know, I think we're going to make some changes, partly because you discover who's in the room, what they're capable of doing. And even though I know for myself what the goals are for the class, I might switch something up and say, you know, we're going to pull that reading or pull that viewing. You know, Sue mentioned something I would never thought of before. Let me do some homework. Find something for us to look at or work with, we'll plop it into the syllabus three weeks from now, and now we've got something that the students also feel they have some purchase in uh, I think for maybe some teachers might feel, oh no no, that might be a sign of of weakness and I, I think it's just the opposite i think if you were if you allow your students to uh, feel that they have some effect upon the shape of the course to which they are devoting their time, it can only be to, a benef- to the benefit of everyone in the room, including the teacher. Um, I may have gone entirely off your point, but I was- No, no, it was <laughs> terrific. I mean, that.
1: And I'll, I'll add to that, that you know a grading policy or an accommodations policy could take a an administrative form where it's primarily about, uh, you know, sort of legal protection of the institution, or it could take a human form where it's about care of the students. And I I think it's a difference in tone, but it's also really a difference in intentionality. Um, And I think where those policies go wrong is where they're so standardized that teachers no longer feel as though they have any real purchase in them and then effectively students don't have a purchase in them either because it's no longer about the work that we do together with students it's about you know what the administration of an institution says that they require of everybody um so yeah we want to be careful to acknowledge the the importance and the necessity of many of these policies that have emerged as part of the syllabus but there's also a, a danger that um they feed into um you know, what is now often as a shorthand referred to as the neoliberal paradigm where it's all about quantification and numbers and data and not about real human needs.
0: I agree, but something I've I've noticed when talking to people about syllabi, some of my colleagues, which admittedly is not a frequent enough conversation, it, it seems that many conceive of a syllabus as just this simple set of classroom roles or a document laying out procedures and expectations. I mean, is there something off with that conception of the document? What are they missing? It, it I think it just,
2: I, I think what you're describing, and I'm sure it's quite widespread, I would categorize, I think Kit and I would categorize, as a missed opportunity. In other words, there's no one telling you you can't say more than what you have to. And some people, I'm not, I'm not going to suggest people put jokes into their syllabi. But the, the, the idea that there's a human presence who has organized this material is, is something we feel is incredibly valuable in terms of being. Uh, making it possible for the teacher to be effective as a teacher, and that's different from choosing the right readings and the right uh, uh, case studies and and the right um, you know, uh, examples for analysis. We are we, we like to say in the book that teaching is about humans doing human things even if the subject is mathematics, even if the subject is robotics, even if the subject is, is um, <clears throat> signal processing. Uh, it's still about humans doing these things. And to the extent to which those of us who were given the privilege to teach, remind our students sometimes several times during the semester that this is a human activity that we're engaged in collectively, the only uh, the benefit, I think there's, a, there's an enormous benefit to that. Students will respect it, they'll respond to it, and more to the point, they'll feel that they have permission to be human people as well.
1: One of the responses we've seen to the book pretty widely is surprise at how much material there is about the everyday of the classroom in a book about the syllabus. But, you know, anybody who teaches understands that a syllabus has to be always in relationship to the way that it unfolds over the course of a term. And seeing a syllabus as merely a policy document is, is the exact reason why students start ignoring it pretty quickly early in the term and why you get you know, what is now basically a meme, you know it's in the syllabus, uh, this desire of faculty to remind students that the answers to their questions are there. Well, it's like the answers to their questions would be there. To the extent that a syllabus is a design for work that comes alive in real time during the course of several weeks. So yeah, I I, I would say right along with Bill, uh, that's a missed opportunity.
0: How then would, assuming you're, you're arguing then that a syllabus is at base a design for student work, right? Yes. Generally, we can agree on that. Yes. So how do you respond to someone like Neil Postman, who would argue that, the critical content of any learning experience is the method or process through which the learning occurs. Let's say you wanted to have free inquiry or discussion as the basis of your classroom. Is a syllabus or a design for work, is it obsolete in those situations?
1: That's an interesting question, but I think if you haven't planned enough, um, you know the, the epigraph to the book is about the uselessness of planning and its essentiality. Um, one of the metaphors among a lot of metaphors in the book is the syllabus as a kind of score for a tune that will be largely improvised, but that still has a set of themes that the players in the band need to be able to play. And you know this this takes us back to narrative again. You need to know what the light motifs will be. You need to know, um you need to know where you're trying to get because if you don't have enough of a plan i mean we've all had the experience of going through an hour-long discussion with students and not really knowing what we got done at the end of it it's great you know everybody had a chance to talk people felt included maybe they were kind of energized but if we didn't have the right planning and the right tools and the right uh, framework for thinking about what we wanted out of that hour for us and for our students then how do we even know if we got anything done? So I, I, would, I would push back against that idea that you can sort of move into some sort of like free jazz sense of what a class is uh, because ultimately people need structures within which to work, partly so they actually remember things um, and partly so that, there's, uh,
0: that you're going somewhere. So we're Miles Davis, not Ornette Coleman. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can get behind that. bill do you have something to something to add i was gonna
2: the the jazz turn the jazz turn makes things even more serious all of a sudden um
0: yeah i i I
2: was thinking more just returning to the idea of uh Students, a student should be taking a class, and this is different in different environments. I mean, obviously, if working in a uh, in high school environment, classes are all set out, and many programs in college, a whole set of courses are set out. They're merely called requirements, which in a funny kind of way is like the saddest possible way to describe a course it's a required course. I can hardly think of anything more damning a student might say about a course. Yeah, I'm taking so-and-so's course, it's a required course. Oh. Uh, yeah, I
1: mean, I, I, yeah, all the time I tell my students, one of the worst reasons to do something is because somebody's making you do it.
2: <laughs> so I think for those of us who are taking classes, I, and I speak as someone who's teaching requi- two required classes uh, this semester, there's a special responsibility. I think to persuade students that the the requiredness aside, there was such an opportunity there, and the opportunity comes from and and, and Kit, I mean Kit was urging this as we we're writing the book, and it's a it's a wonderful idea, and I think it forms so much of it. Is that people take a class in order to do stuff they didn't know how to do before they took the class? Why on earth would you take a class in? Uh, American foreign policy, a beginning class, let us say American foreign policy, if you're already, in some sense, some sort of expert in American foreign policy. Um, I like the idea of allowing students to be perfectly comfortable with their not knowing how to do something and not Mm -hmm. knowing material. Um, You never want, no teacher wants to make her or his students feel dumb. And and sometimes one has to be really generous, even more generous than may one one may want to be, because you're dealing with a with a social group. And I think those are moments in particular where you're being watched really, really carefully. Those are the test cases where teacher students are looking at the teacher to say, well, how is she going to handle this? How is he going to handle this right now? Because we know what, what that student, other student said was wrong or was ill thought through or hadn't was unprepared and so forth Um, so much about what we do in the classroom is not about the material it's about developing a um an environment where students can learn and the material is crucial but it's necessary but not sufficient i guess that's the i guess that's the pseudo mathematical way of describing how you put a class together
0: I think this is a, a good time then to to revisit this idea about having this narrative approach to the syllabus and to the classroom because we've been discussing, you know, this this give and take with with the students and and making the students feel as though they're in this welcoming community. What changes in a classroom when you approach your syllabus or when you approach your class as a whole in that in that narrative in that narrative sense?
1: And I think I'd start by saying it's largely a question of what changes are going to happen in the students. You know, that's the, that's the framing. In storytelling, the central rule is that the protagonist or protagonists uh, experience real difficulty and are transformed in the act of overcoming that difficulty. Um, and I think that's where the question of narrative is so essential. Like if you, haven't, if you haven't thought through your course in those terms before the semester and laid out the possibility of those kinds of experiences, then it's unlikely that the students are going to have them. And, and this partly just came from me thinking about the classes that I loved in high school and college myself. I was just thinking back to those moments where education really was magical and it boiled down to realizing that there were a set of things waiting for me to discover. They weren't just going to be given to me by the professor, but the best teachers probably had anticipated some of those some of those possibilities and had actually designed the the space for me to discover those things, but kind of, you know, it's about stacking the deck a little bit so that the students are given the opportunity to go ahead and fail and then eventually succeed. So I, I think that's the central difference. It's about remembering that you, the teacher, are not the, you're not the protagonist, right? And, and that jazz metaphor, you know, we say in the book, you're the bass, te- you're the bass player. You're not like, you know, you're not the, the trumpet player, you're not the sax player, you're, you're the bassist. And um, that's a somewhat unglamorous job, but man, is it an important one.
2: Yeah, I, on the few occasions when I've had a chance to <clears throat> speak to jazz musicians um, about what they do, um, uh, they've said, yeah, well, the bass. The bass is there. The bass holds it all together. And as Kit said, it's the least glamorous. It seems like the least glamorous job, but without the bass, you're stuck.
0: So we- we're actually Charles Mingus then. All right. I'm just
2: trying to get... <laughs> right. We're, we're leaving all the vocalists out, and I'm getting a little nervous <laughs> about that part. Uh, but I'm uh, um, just thinking more about the, the idea of a narrative, um, uh, I want to make really clear, because I think we do in the book, we're not trying to sentimentalize teaching, um, and that's super important. Uh, I also don't want to sentimentalize what goes on in the classroom. Um, we've been having conversations recently about working with students and getting them to think about texts that... I, I, we happen to both teach literature, but, you know, we teach it kind of broadly. It's a lot of different philosophical and political and gender studies and race studies issues all come into whatever text we're working on. But trying to get the students to ask the right questions includes holding them back from trying to draw the moral. Uh, that's a really tough one uh, with, co- with college age students, at least. Is holding them back from saying, ah, yes, the author wants us to, is telling us that, well, maybe, maybe, but we want, we want to kind of hold, we want to hold that in reserve, maybe forever, and instead try to figure out how this object, this object works. Um, I'm actually much happier talking about literary texts as machines than I am talking about them as <clears throat> uh, sources of moral and ethical extraction but a lot of students' comfort level is, is built from their you know early reading experiences or what they, I think, what they imagine the teacher wants. And so you've got to work to you use the syllabus moment, as it, maybe the syllabus is as much a continuing moment as it is a document, uh, a chance to undo that for them, but to undo it in a generous way. You're not gonna pick on them for reading a, a text in a reductive way. I'm not sure what the question was. I just no. I mean, I, 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 I,
0: I, I agree with where you're going because I, I've argued that much of understanding something is is language. You know, I ask my students, "What did you not understand about the book or the article?" And often, it's the language. Is the phrasing and explicitly spelling out the many purposes of a class, the role of the syllabus, providing students with a document to begin to understand the language of your class? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um,
1: I. Uh... I've taught a course uh, called Keywords, and the, it's a critical vocabulary course. The idea is that we sort of go through major domains of human knowledge, like political economics, identity, technology, business, et cetera, and we look at the the terms that get thrown around um, in the everyday of those of those subjects very often at cross purposes right when one person says the word liberal they might mean a completely different thing than somebody else who says the word liberal and there's a history for that right you can actually go into the oxford english dictionary you can see the many purposes to which that word has been put and if you teach students how to use those tools suddenly they become capable of seeing the functioning of language and realizing where i'm i'm very interested in in when words do match up with things and when words don't match up with things. Um, And I think part of what you're describing, Thomas, it's so much about sometimes there are things that we don't have words for yet, right? That's so much of the work of gender studies and sexuality studies over the past 20 or 30, 40 years. Um, Sometimes we have the wrong words for the things as well. Um, and I also will say right, right now that I have an increasing sense that the relationship between words and things is slipping, uh, is eroding, uh, and it's accelerating over these past several months as we're online because our language is increasingly deracinated from the soil of the real. Um, and I think a syllabus is a place where you can start to lay out the terms within which you'll build language because absolutely disciplines happen in language uh the the language sometimes it's mathematical language my brother-in-law is uh is an engineering professor but what he mostly does is math uh he loves to talk and think about sort of good ways of writing math and less effective ways of writing math there's there are there are more communicative and clear and audience-based ways of writing uh, a proof where you're taking care of your readers where you're conscious of the fact That you're not just writing for a teacher who, as I also like to say, it's also a bad reason to do something to do it just because you know the other person is like has to do it themselves. Um, You know, teachers get paid to read your work. Is that the only kind of person you want to be able to write for? Um, So, learning how to communicate in a way that will participate in a real community seems totally central to the work that we do. And yes, absolutely, a syllabus. I think one of the sections in a syllabus people don't often have uh, is, you know, like
0: some of the critical vocabulary for the course. This is going to be a very broad question, and I apologize for that. <laughs> is then a, a syllabus, and I think, Bill, you were alluding to this, is the syllabus a, a flexible document? It's not anything that's set in stone, right? It's, it can change. I mean, this is for all the teachers listening who are like, I already did my syllabus for the year, I'm stuck with it. You know, what, what would you say to them? Don't make me do it again. Um, I, think it,
2: I think one can look at it, and probably one has to look at it, from two different angles. Um, many teachers have a syllabus that they have to teach. Um, and that's, those are the cards you're dealt, those are the things you have to do. For some, you have to cover certain topics in preparing students for some further evaluation, or in the case of mathematics, for example, um, the little I know about mathematics, which is actually very small, but I've watched my colleagues teaching math at Cooper, and the, the students who are taking, let's say, Calculus one have to get through a certain, and be able to certain amount of material be able to do a certain kind of work in order to go on to the next level of calculus or whatever it might be Surely, So,
1: uh bill i'm just i just want to say early and yeah. early in drafting and this did not make it into the book but early yeah. in drafting um i was working on on a section that i was calling being professor Melkovich," <laughs> you know which was you know what happens when you're suddenly dropped into the pedagogical consciousness of old Professor Malkovich, who taught this course for 15 years, and you're the poor adjunct who's been dropped into his pedagogical brain. Um, so th- this is that's a reality that many of us have to live with, um, particularly you know the increasing, increasingly dominant ranks of uh, of adjunct faculty at universities. Uh, but anyway, I'll I'll let Bill continue.
2: No, no, I I was just thinking about you know the. Uh, uh that moment when the understudy in in, these Broadway legends of the understudy who shows up because the star has broken his leg or her leg. Uh, It doesn't really tend to work that way in the world of higher ed or education in general, but there is that sense where you have to fill somebody else's shoes. And in some cases, it's more than that. You're haunted by the ghost of whoever used to teach the course. You're not nearly as good as Professor Smith. Professor Smith's classes filled hundreds of seats. What What have you done since lunch? Um, those, I think, are further dimensions of the problem of the syllabus that you're handed. I think, however, that if you treat the syllabus, we talk, we kind of a metaphor we use uh, in the book, and we're getting back to dangerously coast to talking about uh, um, Mingus and Charlie Parker, uh, is the, the idea that it's a script you work off of. Um, yeah, you'll play those notes, but there are a lot of other notes you're going to do as well. And I think sharing that with the student early on saying, look, let me level with you. We're going to cover all this material because this is a course. The catalog says we're going to cover this material. Now, there are lots of ways we can do this. And the way I want to try to do this with you is having you try to do it with me. We're going to do this thing as a collective exercise. And we're going to build it so that it's a series of things you'll learn how to do that you don't know how to do now. for example, uh, teaching a freshman course where there are four papers, okay, four papers that are the same paper four times is not four papers a student having a, it's not an assignment a series of assignments um, that that's worth undertaking i'm 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 recalling uh, from my years working in, in uh, corporate offices, um, having uh, someone say to me acidly of an applicant, sometimes 20 years experience is one year's experience 20 times. And sometimes uh, writing four papers is writing one paper four times. That's not the student's fault. But the teacher's responsibility can be crap the assignments so that they are either more difficult or they require new sets of skills or new ways of thinking, you wouldn't want to give that fourth assignment as the first assignment. If you did, then you've got some, you're, you've got some other game in, in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the, that's one of the ways in which progression seems really important in terms of thinking about the syllabus you're handed.
1: And, and so, and, and dealing with the necessity of change, you know, means that, okay, Pedagogy 101, when you're constructing a lesson plan, you really better be looking at what the students were able to do in their work leading up to that day, and you better be thinking about the work they got to do the next day mm-hmm. in designing whatever you're going to do that day. You can so, anticipate some of that in the syllabus, but you can't entirely know what's going to happen. Um, you know, especially, you know, a pandemic breaks out. Well, things change. But, you know, we have our own little miniature pandemics every semester yes, the syllabus always has to be somewhat open. And I mean, you know, why not try uh, making the syllabus as a Google doc that you can update live and that Mm -hmm. students, when they access it, it changes every time. Why not? You know, I, I think there's so much space for experimentation and for rethinking what it means to plan in a way that you're leaving open the space for improvisation.
0: No, I I mean, I see that completely, especially in education. I mean, you can really only learn in relation to what you already know. And if, you know, week one, students just aren't getting what you're trying to lay down, you're going to have you're not going to be able to move on to what you had planned for week two. You're going to have to go back, remediate, talk about things. So Mm -hmm. we've been talking about, you know, syllabi for almost 44 minutes now. I'm very curious. How, how does writing a book about the syllabus affect the way you think about the syllabus for a class you teach? I mean, do you find yourself paying undue amounts of attention to it, obsessing? It has to be perfect. I just wrote a book on this thing. Or, I mean, is it just really a net positive experience?
2: It's worse than that. <laughs> Self consciousness is painful at times, and it's especially it's especially painful when uh, a sharp a sharp student will say in class. You just wrote a book about syllabus and you're, and you're still thinking out loud about how, what we're gonna be reading in two weeks. And that's because you know things have changed or you're responding. I hope it's because I'm responding to student in- interest and where I think the course can go. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I look back at every syllabus I've ever written now and think, oh, that's, that could have been a lot better. Um, you know, honestly, I, I, I've written a bunch of books and I think you write books to figure out what you think. And um, I don't know a better reason to write a book. Um, Yeah, it's nice to have readers, and I really love having readers. But the reason I love having readers is because I think by the time it's in print, I'm hopeful that there's something that can be of use to other people. Um, But I really do believe that you undertake to write a book to discover stuff, not simply to download your brain. That sounds incredibly boring. As a as a way of engaging the writing process, also um, working with with Kit was fantastic, and I've never never written with anybody before. Um, and I thought, no, I'm much too neurotic to write with anybody. But uh, it was it was really a complete pleasure.
1: I I would say that the experience of co-authoring might be the most important piece of how my thinking about my syllabi has changed. Uh, my course for next semester. We won't be setting the syllabus in stone, at least for the first couple of weeks of the term. Uh, we in, and this is, you know, in a way, the process of writing the book has, has taken me deeper into the more radical spaces of uh, thinking through what education can be, uh, particularly in this, this uh, contentious, difficult political moment. Um, so I fully intend to work with my students together uh, to in a sort of quasi political process to figure out exactly what the shape of the course is going to be. Um, I mean, hell, I, I kind of intend to allow for the you know synchronous in person and quasi in person um, moments in class, possibly to involve voting uh, on what's going to happen. Uh, I think that's maybe the biggest. Change for me is when we landed on this notion of the syllabus as what we call a pedagogical contract, as a, as a thing that invents a community, much like a constitution invents a nation state, um, it made me start to really drill down into what that would mean in, if I fully embraced that, that conception of the syllabus. So I'm, I've gotten more experimental, um, but also yes, also more anxious. It definitely produces <laughs> increased anxiety.
0: I could only imagine. Uh, the as for your point about having students vote on things, I recently implemented that in one of my courses. The Students absolutely respond very, very well to that. I mean, they they like it's that taking the active process. You know, it's like when you have a favorite artist or a podcaster or something, right? And you subscribe to something they do, and then you get a chance to look behind the scenes. It feels like you're taking part in the creation of it, and you're way more invested in it. I find. But uh, I mean, what you were getting at about thinking out loud about the readings you're going to do in two weeks and you have a student point out that you write a book on a syllabus and you talking about getting, uh, Kit talking about getting experimental. I don't, I don't think any of that contradicts because um, this goes to another point that I heard you make on the New Books in Education podcast. I think it was Kit who said this. You said something that really connected with me. I'm paraphrasing, of course, that the act of teaching requires consistent philosophical reflection. What, what does it mean for a teacher to meaningfully or philosophically reflect on the act of teaching?
1: That's another um, response we've been seeing to the book is, is kind of surprised at how unprescriptive the book is. Uh, but that comes from the experience of seeing way too much faculty development. And again, this is both at the high school level and the college level that is you know, top down or has been boiled into like internet listicles. I mean, how many times have we seen, you know, 10 things you can do to improve your first day of class? And that strikes us as profoundly reductive given what is as sort of um, diminished as the role of the teacher has become in contemporary American society. In truth, we participate in inventing the future in a very, very deep, profound way that should make us all anxious about what we're doing. It's incredibly important work. It's dangerous work. Uh, It's essential work. And that means that you've got to have a philosophical practice in relationship to how you conduct your work every day. Um, So we wanted to write a book that would offer frameworks for thinking. You know, we're not gonna teach teachers how to teach. Because that would be, you know, that itself would be the wrong model of teaching. That would be a kind mm-hmm. of top down. And this is, this is part of the issue also with so much material about teaching that's out there is it just gives you instructions and then you're supposed to just execute those instructions. Like, okay, so maybe there's a disconnect between the, the forms of pedagogy that we know increasingly are effective, inclusive, um, adequate to the historical moment that we're in and the way that we're teaching teaching. Faculty development that's top down or that could be called quote unquote training strikes us as completely wrongheaded. If you can call it training and if that's an accurate description of what you're doing, then you're doing it wrong. Um, And I've been thinking more and more about faculty development in in my own role at at, uh, our college, the Cooper Union. It's um, If you wanna be effective helping teachers, you have to just help them find their own voice Largely you have to give them tools that they can use themselves and you can't tell them exactly how to use those tools instead you've got to give them um, hope and um, Help them reconsider why they started doing this in the first place
2: Uh, One of the things we say a lot um, Explicitly I think in the book but we've been saying a lot since is that teachers know how to teach And many administrations and many governing bodies and many other groups that feel they know better than teachers um, do not understand either the complexity of teaching, uh, the deep humaneness that motivates good teaching, and uh, that those... those groups or uh, units of, uh, of the system that would like to tell teachers how to teach are making a really big mistake. Um, teachers are the ones who can raise the questions about what they need and about what they don't know, but what they, what they would like to be able to do. Those are the, some of the most crucial and underheard voices in, in our society today. Um if anything, we want to help teachers be better at what they already know how to do.
1: And and we want to show the deep respect that we have for teachers, um, for people who do the thing that we've been trying to do these past many years. Because we know how difficult the work is, how demanding the work is, and we wanted very much to write a book that would make people feel seen. Um, so as much as it's a very student-centered book, we hope it's also a very teacher-centered book, not in the sense of the teacher is the font of knowledge, but in the sense of the teacher as this person who plays this incredibly important social role.
0: And I, I think it definitely, definitely comes across. And I mean, Bill put it perfectly, teachers know how to teach. And um, that's as good a place as anywhere to call it. I mean, I'm really happy with that. That's a, that's a fantastic endpoint. Uh, thank you gentlemen for coming on and taking time out of your day to have a discussion. Thanks, Thanks so, much so much.
2: For it's been great. Thank you.
0: Yeah, it was a real pleasure, Thomas.